Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, welcome to the Science and Technology Studies channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Nupur. Today we are speaking to Dr. Rob Kitchen, a professor and an ERC advanced investigator in the National Institute of Regional and Spatial Analysis at Maynooth University, Ireland. Uh, we're speaking to Rob about his new book, Data Lives, How Data is Made and Shape Our World. Welcome, Rob. Thanks very much for talking to me. To start us off, could you please tell us a bit about yourself, your academic journey, and your primary research areas of interest? Yeah, so I'm a geographer by uh, training, although I've worked in a social sciences research institute for nearly 20 years now. So I'm kind of a bit broader than uh, just geography these days. Um, I mean, I started off... uh, in a kind of a more science kind of background and was using kind of statistics and was writing code to draw maps and run run analysis on my on my PhD, which was a joint, a joint PhD with geography and psychology. I moved away towards more kind of social theory then once I'd moved off into a kind of post-PhD um, period I really started to look at uh, technology and society. So my, f- my first book was about cyberspace in 1998. Uh, and then I was kind of interested in kind of mapping mapping the internet and, and the kind of relationship between uh, what the internet was enabling and how society was developing um, and, you know, yeah. questions around things like urban yeah. regional development and so on. And then got more interested in software. Okay. That was my second question to you, which is that um, I I know based on your academic journey that you've been especially interested in questions of spatiality. Uh, Is that what brought you to the questions of data processes and politics beyond urban or geographical data per se? Yeah, and it probably stems from a kind of critical GIS and so an interest in spatial data 
and trying to understand uh, kind of socio-spatial processes and patterns within uh, within society. So critical GIS basically takes the view that, uh, that, that there's a kind of a praxis and politics around what the does and what the what data are used and you take them at a, a kind of objective uh, face value but you you're kind of situated and positioned as a researcher and you look at the kind of the politics and ethics of what you're uh, what you're doing so that's i came towards data really i was using it a lot in research i was running a, a national policy institute so we were doing a lot of analysis using large quantitative data sets like the census mm-hmm. to uh, kind of analyze what was what was going on in the country so a lot of this was based around what was going on in Ireland and also cross-border research what was going on with Northern Ireland right. even with Northern Ireland it became very clear quite quickly that a lot of the data sets didn't marry up with the data sets in the Republic and that would, that was a big uh, analytical uh, issue and there was a lot of politics about how you uh, then try to create all Ireland data sets mm. and I mean as in real politics, as in having to talk to politicians and policymakers about new data sets or trying to alter how surveys and uh, political instruments were actually uh, uh, being developed and used. Okay. Uh, so in the introduction to the book, you do kind of talk a little bit about the data projects and context that informed this particular book, because in this case, you reflect a lot on on these different projects that you've been a part of. Would you mind telling us a bit about these projects or the settings that you were in that have inspired this book? Yeah, so uh, part of what we were doing in this research institute was trying to build data infrastructures that would help researchers uh, undertake their undertake their research. Um, we got a grant in uh, 2005 to create this All Island Research Observatory, which was explicitly about trying to link these data sets together across the border and to harmonize the data. Uh, at the same time, we were developing the Irish Qualitative Data Archive. So on the one side, quantitative spatial data. On the other side, qualitative data, so focus groups, interviews, artwork, photos, music, uh, old newspapers, whatever it might be. And that project then led on into the Digital Repository of Ireland, which is a national data infrastructure that brings together all the museums, galleries, libraries, uh, the national broadcaster, uh, to try and create a federated data infrastructure, a trusted infrastructure that would uh, act as a repository for their data, but also kind of data harvester for their data to interlink into their own uh, repositories. That's a really big kind of 100-year project, you know, that this this data is meant to be there for the next generation. Partly being inspired by the fact that, you know, this digital data is um, particularly vulnerable to being uh, lost. And Ireland lost a lot of its national data in uh, 19... Uh, 22 when the national uh, data repository so the the public records office was was blown up in the civil war with the land records and the parish records the census records and all that kind of stuff so you know if we want our grandchildren our great-grandchildren and so on to have archives based on born digital mm. data then we have a repository so 
that's what yeah. the digital repository of Ireland was doing. And recently I've been building city dashboards. Uh, so I've been working uh, on with Dublin and Cork um, municipalities to try and uh, create dashboards based on real-time data from sensors and, um, and kind of public administration uh, data. So, on the, you know, part of what I'm interested in is actually building these technologies. And what I'm interested in is critiquing yeah. and thinking through the kind of politics and praxis and ethics of these technologies. So I'm trying to do both yeah. sides. Yeah, in some kind of balance. So, I mean, uh, you know, I think if we're going to develop these kinds of technologies, then we need to be quite critical and reflect on what it is that we're doing. Mm-hmm. For sure, you know, and yeah. um, and what kinds of assumptions and values and politics get embedded into the technology, and what kind of work these technology does in terms of you know how they act, what kinds of questions they enable, what kinds of um, outcomes do they produce? Do they discriminate? Do they do they deepen inequalities? Do they empower people? You know, what is actually going on with these things? Absolutely. So a side question, uh, because I'm not well acquainted with the Irish landscape, is just that you mentioned these really important and interesting things about uh, data related to also cultural history and memory, and hence sort of a sense of national identity. I was just curious, uh, if when you went into some of these projects, uh, what kinds of anxieties or desires um, are connected and woven into this particular Irish data project? Yeah, I mean, there's there's politics in all of them. Uh, so the mm-hmm. cross-border project, as you can as you can imagine, has a lot of politics between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Any mm-hmm. project that tries to create harmonisation between those two jurisdictions always right. has anxieties. And that was a project that kind of had a stop-start that kind of thing, depending on who was on who was the minister in the north. So, Northern Ireland have a power sharing government. So, which basically means you have unionists and uh, nationalists both in government working together. And depending on which minister was in charge of uh, cross border data at the time, you you either made progress or you didn't, uh, because one political party right. wanted uh, the harmonisation and the other uh, wasn't so keen. Uh, so there's a lot of politics went in that project. I mean, there were a lot of meetings. There was even things like the atlas we produced pulled off of the presses uh, because a political party objected to the title. And so we ended up with the uh, oh. atlas of the island of Ireland, um, which is which is geographically correct <laughs> and kind of seen as less political right. than an all-Ireland atlas. Yeah, so so there's those kind of things mm. in in the digital repository of Ireland. Although there were some questions around kind of memory, and cultural history, and uh, a kind of politics of the state, and so on, the real politics in that project were more about um, who mm. has control over uh, over the repository relationship between the various stakeholders mm-hmm. um, and so there was a kind of politics in finding a neutral kind of organization it was kind of happy enough to have run the project where 
you know, it wasn't seen that the project was being uh, being delivered or made suitable for any one particular institution. And respecting that each of these uh, entities would want to retain their mm. own repositories. Uh, now, some of them are too small and they don't they don't have the capacity to build their own infrastructure. So the DRI provides that infrastructure uh, in other places like the National Library uh, or the National Museum. They might have their own data infrastructure. Right. And what you want to do is link up across onto the metadata so you can you kind of federate their content into your content while it stays on their on their service. So questions around ownership and kind of control and so on. So a different, mm. different set of politics. Um, getting to the book that we're talking about today, uh, can you tell us a bit about the origin story of this book? Um, how was it conceived and like, how did you come to writing also in this particular style and structure that we'll talk about in a minute? Uh, which is, I, I suppose, slightly different from the projects that you've done before. Yeah, so it's a it's a it's a kind of an academic book, but not told in an academic voice. And, right. Um, and basically, what it is is all the anecdotes that I use in my teaching to illustrate um, the points I'm trying to make. Mm. Um, so that's kind of why they're more kind of stories and biographical. So I, I. Or to illustrate the points I'm trying to make, the theoretical points or the practical points, I try to talk to the students about real projects and mm. to talk about are the ones I work on because I, I, I know them inside and out and I know the history of them and I know the personalities and the politics that were involved yeah. and the technologies that were involved and, and the choices and decisions that were made uh, and so on. So that, that was the idea was, was how could I... Uh, find a way of of producing that kind of more anecdotal to a certain kind of mm-hmm. uh, material that would be useful for my students mm-hmm. but might be also useful for students elsewhere who want to get grounded uh, inside look at how some of these kind of data projects work whether that's open data or whether it's data mm-hmm. uh, or whether it's uh, how data infrastructures work um, and I've been very involved in the open data kind of movement side of things in Ireland and, and working with government departments to open their data. So when I, sorry, when I started reading the book, I did Im- immediately wonder if the wordplay in the title Data Lives or Data Lives was intentional and the book confirms it. So do you want to speak a little bit to the title? Yeah, so the, yeah, the title is a kind of... Uh, uh, yeah, plays both ways. So it rhymes with both gives and with hives. So data lives, which is kind of uh, the book is structured into two parts. Uh, so the first part is the life of data. So that's data lives, is living with data, and that's data lives. Um, so yeah, I was trying to kind of play on uh, the two the two parts of the book and the kind of two lives of data, the actual cycle of data itself, and then how data impacts on our everyday uh, lives. The structure and the content of the book that um, uses like short fictional stories punctuated with essays, as well as your emphasis on everyday life and liveness, I suppose, makes um, this book really interesting to read. So would you like to tell us a bit about why you chose this style of writing and how the book is structured? You just said there are two different parts. And and yeah, just kind of how... um, 
people might read the book? Yeah, so most most of my uh, career has been kind of telling stories with data. My teacher and I kind of tell stories about data, and um, and so that's that. I kind of and and they are kind of based around these anecdotes. So I did, and I, I kind of was interested in trying to come at this in a more playful uh, kind of way that that maybe uh, communicates. Uh, in a way that will connect with people's everyday experiences as opposed to being quite uh, distant. So a lot of examples are things that people can hopefully relate to their, their conversations about, you know, uh, how a dating app works or how Netflix recommends things to you or how you might, you know, how, how you store data or how the data is being used by companies in relation to or how the state is using data to make decisions about you and the kind of the glitches and the and the decisions and so on that are in, that are involved in that so so I, cho- I chose to do it in two in two ways and the first way was through actual stories so short stories um as a fiction now i've done that before i i edited a book called um how to run a city like Amazon uh, and other where we had 38 kind of stories in the book uh, where each story imagined if a city was run by a different company. So if the city was run by Amazon, if the city was run by Google, if the city was run by Ikea, if the city was by, you know, mm. whichever company you can kind of think of and, and run using their yeah. business model. So it was kind of speculative fiction. Whereas in this book is more grounded kind of uh, fiction, um, so so I'm kind of interested in stories and telling stories about data, which is of course what we do in any case in science when we write our papers in science we're we're writing a narrative designed to convince people about our findings and our conclusions and our theory and ideas and so on. So you know, we 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 produce narrative all the time as 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 and academics yeah but this is more fiction and then the second part was more these kind of biographical essays talking about all of these various mm. kind of projects and uh, kind of committees and so on so a, a lot of it is grounded in real projects and real uh, scandal so one of the essays is about the time that the irish government mm-hmm. lost 2.3 billion euros in a spreadsheet error Wow! Yeah, yeah, that, that was and they didn't and they didn't notice story. for a year uh, <laughs> that it was missing. Right, and um, and I served on one of the subcommittees that investigated what had happened, and so right. you know, just kind of uh, now I didn't that 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 is done as a story because I can't say what mm-hmm. actually happened. <laughs> so. Um, you know, so the stories, in a way, are, uh, allow you to also say things about things that you can't say about sometimes, um, because of things like non-disclosure agreements or well, uh, right or Chatham House rules or how a lot of these kinds of committees. Uh, so that was that was the way into it, and to try right. and make it a bit more engaging and a bit more kind of uh, uh, fun. And I'd like to think it works. I mean, I'm. I'm kind of 30 odd books in, and this is the first one I think my mother read. She read it. Yeah, she's read this book. She hasn't right. read it. 
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. So in fact, diving straight into the book, um, I since we have limited time, I did want to at least talk about two different stories. Um, and for our listeners who may not have read the book yet, I'm tempted to recount one story. The first one to just give the audience a bit of a sneak peek. Uh, I thought that the first story was perfect in so many ways to really break through the monotony of, you know, reading about data. Because like you describe in the book, um, our world is also so inundated with narratives about data that one really has to struggle to stay interested in what's new about, you know, possibly most horrific and scandalous stories about data. So this particular story tells us of an awkward date between uh, a sound engineer, Emma, and a, a tech and data anthropologist, Julian. The crux of the story, as we learn, is that Emma sees sound as data that's already available in the environment. Uh, and she sees it as her job to sort of collect the sound data with the best sensors available. Um, and she admits to the possibility of noise in data, but takes serious offense to Julian's comments that all data are cooked. Uh, and I thought that was hilarious and very relatable because as their discussion progresses, Julian kind of keeps insisting how all data are contingent and messy. Uh, and naturally, Emma gets quite irritated uh, because to her, it feels like he's uh, undermining her scientific integrity. So this sort of talking past uh, or provocations might be familiar to STS scholars who have tried to challenge the neutrality, objectivity and givenness of data. Um, could you tell us a bit more about what inspired this particular story? Uh, and also, as you just said, that often it's, in fact, challenging to talk about, uh, you know, actual data events in the real world because of all sorts of not only like disclosure issues, but also um, because of their specificity and so on. So um, what kind of challenges have you also faced when you, you've been embedded in these projects and spoken to government officials or, you know, family members about data? Yeah. So, I mean, the story was designed to do exactly what you've said, which was to provide kind of contrast between somebody who sees data as raw and 
that can be kind of collected objectively and analysed and made sense of in a very kind of rote, uh, kind of essentialised scientific way. An anthropologist who sees the data as being cooked rather than raw, and that there's a lot of politics and practices involved in what's there, and that the sound data doesn't pre-exist its generation, but that the the, the instruments and uh, the kind of science behind how how that works is uh, invented. And you know, if you if you do things in a different way, you get different data and so on. So. Uh, and so, yeah, the date was a way of kind of being able to have this kind of backwards and forwards uh, kind of conversation between uh, those those two um, people with very different viewpoints about, uh, about about data and do it in a quite a fun uh, way. She does get quite uh, annoyed with him. Uh, at the same time, she can't walk away from him because she 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 needs him for a, a date for a wedding. And mm. you know, obviously, somebody thought that they were they would be a very good match, but that's now, now. I see this in my projects quite a lot because a lot of my projects involve, on the one hand, computer scientists and data scientists, and on the other hand, kind of sociologists, historians, mm. uh, humanities, uh, social sciences, um, and I'm kind of. You know, so I do see that playing out, and I do teach. So a lot, a lot of my teaching is to is to data scientists and computer scientists. Um, so I don't I don't just teach in kind of the social sciences. I also teach in the in the in the, as I run a, I run a critical data science course and a kind of ethics of data kind of course for them. And they're quite resistant at the start to these kinds of ideas. Um, what I tend to find happen is is that I can usually persuade them quite quickly, kind of using the same kind of arguments within within the story. But then what happens is they treat it as an inconvenient truth, and try to park mm. and try to park it to one side, so that they'll admit to the point of their politics and practices, which is more okay. than mechanical objectivity, is to ignore it, or, or to say that they're trying to find ways to minimise it. Mm. Uh, so they, they, their instinct is to try and hide it, and you know, so it's almost like a kind of strategic essentialism is adopted. And then we, you know, and then we kind of have a ongoing tussles around that. But yeah, that's that's the typical kind of reaction. Right. So I did want to ask you if I, I feel like the story is a foil. It's a sort of shell to be able to actually address um, a tension that is sort of a long endured and widely felt tension between, like you said, uh, computer scientists or more positivist scholars and more critical data scholars, which is this whole idea of like um, data as not given, but data as being constantly generated. And I did want to ask you if, you know, with your students, when you do offer them this this reframing or this proposition, um, how do they receive it in the sense if even if they agree with you, like, do they ask you, well, so what? What are we supposed to do th- do with this uh, reframing or, or with this knowledge? And what answer might you give them? Yeah, so they are. They do tend to be quite resistant. Mm-hmm. And the, where I try to push them towards is more critical versions of um, science, basically. So ideas of critical data science bring on ideas of critical GIS or radical statistics or critical realism, 
you know, so there are a number of people who continue to use quantitative data, statistics, uh, kind of mapping and so on that um, that have a more critical kind of uh, understanding. So they recognize their kind of positionality and their situatedness and they recognize the policies and practices in how they're modeling or what kind of work that they're they're doing. Absolutely. And so I try to push them towards that kind of framing, really, which which does, as I said from earlier, does draw on my kind of history of engaging with critical GIS and so on, uh, which is a, which is a long-standing debate in geography going back into the uh, early mid nineteen nineties. So some of the debates that have been going on in critical data studies, I think, have been going on in some disciplines, not just geography, but also sociology and some other disciplines for quite for quite a long time in this kind of positivist, post-positivist kind of uh, long-standing debates and then people trying to find a middle ground or an alternative without without actually ditching uh, stats and quantitative approaches. And what happens, uh, not just with students, but I imagine you've spoken about this with also like scientists who um, sort of come from more confident positions, having done this in their own practice, what happens when they hear this and then they say, well, it's only a matter of the sensors getting better? Because I do know that in the story, Emma basically says that, that the sound sensors will get better. The technology will continue to get better. So the contingency and the messiness that you're so invested in showing me uh, will eventually reduce or go away. Like, why should I even care? Because, you know, it's only a matter of technological advance. Yeah, so this is the the kind of appeal to mechanical objectivity, to this kind of notion that you can be apolitical in how you go about doing 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 the doing the research, and it doesn't, doesn't really hold. So you can quite easily undermine that by starting a conversation about well, where are the sound sensors located, and uh, the whole politics about decisions about where you put your sound sensor. You know, so if you put it in the middle of the park or you put it next to the highway. You'll get readings if you put it six inches off the floor, or you put it, you know, twenty feet up a lamppost. You'll get different readings. Um, so it's not just about it's not just about the instrumental quality of the sound center itself. There's the kinds of questions around where you cite the sensor, and then there's other questions around well, what what is the sample rate? Are you going to sample the sound every ten seconds, every minute, every five minutes, every hour? You know, what are you going to do with the noise that's in the data? How are you going to transform that? And what 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 way are you going to do? Now they they will say that they all use absolutely. So their appeal then is towards standardisation. We we have protocols and standards for how we deal with that. But of course, standards are negotiated, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of politics and standards. I mean, there's a huge global fight going on in standards at the minute, really between America and China about who, who has control of the various standards organisations and who's driving the agenda. Mm. And obviously there's different laws and regulations in different places. So in the EU, there are different kinds of mm. uh, regulations around these. So the, the, I mean, standards are really very highly political. And I have a PhD student, Jim White, who did his, did his PhD on city standards or city data standards. I think 80 different data mm. standards um, and they all vary. So which one you pick will make a difference to what you do. So, you know, you just right. keep having these conversations without with make by also making it clear that what you're not trying to do is undermine their scientific integrity. Mm. Um, this is not about uh, rubbishing science. I mean, science is really 
very, very important. And uh, the developments we make through science are very important too. Uh, so we're not we're not trying to um, damage the reputation of science. What we're trying to do is get is get scientists to acknowledge where there are particular questions or weaknesses that need uh, kind of rebuttal or answers to what's going on, and to own that kind of politics and practice rather than deny or try to hide it. So instead of, instead of pushing the inconvenient truth to one side, it's actually owning the inconvenient truth and driving the narrative around why, even though there might be issues, mm -hmm. that the science still has some degree of integrity which um, uh, which provides some level of value in relation to what it's trying to do. Right. So Julian is trying to say, Look, I'm not under. I'm actually not undermining your science. I think your science is really good. I'm just trying to unpick uh, what's actually going on and what kinds of values or or work is being done in relation to the senses and and to acknowledge them rather than deny them. Right. That's such a fascinating way of putting it because I feel like if we're able to show more positive scientists that. You know, critical science studies, for example, is not in opposition to, but in fact, devoted and committed to like bettering, improving, deepening the the scientific practice itself. That might just solve a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, I've had people kind of say, "Look, what what are you doing? You're you're actually you're building this technology. You're building dashboards. Like, why are you undermining your own work?" Yeah. My answer to that is, is that I'm I'm building it to destroy it to build it better. You know, I, I every project I build, I I I have every intention of trying to dismantle. Hmm. As a you know, theoretically try to dismantle, dismantle and empirically try to do it as a way of the weak points hmm. to be able to build it in a more robust, rigorous way that that uh, is very open and transparent about what it's doing, how it's doing it, what its consequences are, uh, how it acts in the world, what's what's going on, you know. So it's about being explicit mm -hmm. and open and trying to improve as opposed to trying to hide and try to deny and try to hoodwink, have this kind of shield of strategic essentialism, right. which is basically, you know, strategic essentialism basically just means pretending that the, that the issues you know are there are not there. Mm. Um, in another story, Gridlock, we get a glimpse of the traffic management system uh, on a bad day where the sentient machine, Travista, has stopped functioning properly. The human hero of the story, with help from his female colleague, manages to save the day. Uh, and that's it's the, by saving the day here, we mean that the Dutch prime minister is stuck in this traffic jam. And through conversations between human workers, we realize how humans constantly swoop in, compensate for when uh, data and tech systems fail to deliver on uh, promises of efficiency, automation, added intelligence, and so on. And based on the several projects that uh, led you to reflect on the truth of data and how contingent they are, I was wondering if one goal of the book um, is also to highlight the work that people do in um, various kinds of administrative positions, uh, varying degrees of expertise, in order to realize and make these promises of datafication come true. 
Um, and I don't just mean uh, the labor that people perform, but also the role of human intelligence in taking some of these discretionary decisions that um, sort of get hidden and obscured um, while we celebrate the fact that data seems to be powering our world. Yeah, so the, I mean, the gridlock story is based on actual real field work. So with a postdoc uh, researcher called Claudio Coletta, who um, did an ethnography of the traffic control room in Dublin, he was based in the control room and uh, unobserved what was going on in there over a couple of couple of months. And, you know, the system is automated. So it's taking data from uh, kind of 800 inductive loops across the across the road network. And it's taking data from 400 odd cameras. And it's also pulling data from social media. It, it knows where all the thousand buses on the network are at any one time. And so I'm trying to use that data to fade mm. the traffic lights in real time. So that the, the, how long the traffic lights is always altering based on the flow of uh, cars and vehicles across the network. Um, but there are people on the loop. So there are people in the control room who intervene when uh, things are not going uh, quite as they should be going. Um, when there's like an unusual event and the algorithms don't quite do what they're meant to do. Or there's a special occasion like you want to green light ambulances through junctions or uh, you know there's a political parade or there's something else going on. So, so this has been a kind of debate in in the kind of automation automation yeah. kind of literature around the degree to which people should be involved. So you, you have a human in, on, or off the loop. Mm. Uh, so in is the system kind of uh, comes up with a recommendation, but the person always makes the decision. The on is the is automated and it kind of works on its own, but the person can kind of intervene and override, and then is the whole thing is just seeded to the algorithm, which just works with uh, relatively little oversight. Where, where that debate uh, um, kind of got interesting was the debate over killer drones. Okay. Every government was asked whether whether they would develop systems that were in, on, or off the loop, you know, whether you would seede uh, uh, the, the killing of people to fully to an algorithm or whether it would always be done by a human, even if identified by an algorithm, or whether it would be some hybrid uh, kind of on-the-loop system. So, so that's what that kind of that story looks at, is uh, a person working with the system to try and with a, uh, deal with a kind of congestion crisis uh, when there's a very high-value individual who needs to get to a mm. particular meeting. But a lot of the stories have got that that kind of um, relationship between the human and the system. So there's a, there's a story called The Secret Science of Formulas, which is a, a couple of researchers working with a government minister where he keeps tweaking the algorithm to basically get the result that he wants. But say that it was scientific because of the mm. algorithm that ultimately made the decision to be able to hide behind the kind of objectivity of the algorithm, even though he's tweaking it constantly. Mm. Uh, called Fighting Fires, which is uh, where somebody who's been a volunteer firefighter loses their yeah. unemployment benefits because uh, they've not been uh, making enough applicate yeah. job applications uh, and the algorithm in that, in that system, in the government system, has basically flagged him up as a problem and, mm -hmm. and bumped him out. So even though he's doing volunteer work for the state, 
he, another part of the state has bumped him out, and and he's having a negotiation with uh, with a with a with the person in the office. How how does it, how does he deal with this algorithm and so on? So it's still human mediator. There's a person in that office trying to guide him how to go back into the system and get himself. Uh, it's the same one called security theater where it's going through the security in an airport and data that comes up about your mm. travel history and whether you're in any security database. I mean, that's a, that's a mediated uh, story as well. And I've, I've written about that in the past as well about security theater, how different people can negotiate different things through the security depending on what their back what their background is and uh, and so on so although in theory it's very technical yeah it, in a lot of ways it's actually a very human mediated uh process where you kind of have a negotiation with whoever's at the passport control or whoever's controlling the airport security machine mm-hmm. and so on so people people are in these systems in lots of different ways from the you know, the, the requirements analysis and the coding and the building and the developing through into the, its uh, into its use and uh, and uh, you know and, mm-hmm. and how it impacts on people's every everyday uh, lives. Um, yeah, I I do remember the story about uh, the firefighter who was too busy doing his job so that he couldn't fill out the job applications. And this is precisely what I was thinking about questions of remediation and how they're placing us in also different kinds of relationships vis-a-vis uh, each other as humans. Um, I did have a question about the data stories part, um, and I was going to ask you this towards the end, but I think you already hinted at the fact that you've perhaps intended this book to be more of a, uh, a teaching tool rather than simply just being a theoretical contribution or intervention. So do you imagine that this would be taught in STEM departments or, or that it would be sort of this valuable aid for instructors who are dealing with students who are otherwise being trained to have faith and trust in data yeah i i to me it has three audiences really i mean mm-hmm. it is a kind of a, a kind of traditional maybe more stss critical data studies geography sociology uh, some of the humanities media studies and so on who who are in data yeah. and data work and the like of the data cycle like it, it does still have kind of uh, theoretical ideas in the book and I d- and I and hopefully I contribute to those debates rather than just rehearse them uh, the second one is around kind of teaching as a pedagogic tool you know there's loads of there's loads of examples in the book so it, you know the book is basically all of these little stories yeah. and anecdotes kind of uh, illustrations of how things work so it, it you know provides a lot of kind of real world examples of you know what what a lot of these systems and infrastructure are 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 doing and that could be to people on the science side of things but it's also actually to people who are on the social sciences and maybe in things like humanities uh, and so on and the last group is actually just a more kind of mm-hmm. it is partly almost like a scholarly trade book it's aimed at a general audience who are interested in data you know what some of these systems might might be doing and how they work and um and how we can kind of mm-hmm. think uh, kind of critically uh, about them that how can we kind of reflect on what's going on and maybe think about uh, alternative alternative ways of doing things or acknowledging what's actually happening. Right. Towards the end in the conclusion, you referred to an earlier book which came out last year, uh, which is Slow Computing, that you co-authored with Alistair Fraser. 
um, having established that it is increasingly difficult to entirely escape top-down capitalist data futures, you both call for enacting a digital ethics of care and also the need to claim and assert data sovereignty. Uh, could you elaborate on, on these two points? What did you mean and uh, what does that particularly mean in the context of this book? Yeah, so a digital, uh, a kind of an ethics of data care is around, it's building on the feminist notion of ethics of care, which is about how how best to kind of respond to what's going on, you know, that thinks about how we're, how we're, how we're treated. So it's partly about treating, uh, treating others how we would expect ourselves to be treated. So it's how best to respond uh, to things. It's kind of, it is kind of related to social justice issues, but where a social justice tends to focus on kind of rights and rules and principles. Uh, and so this is a more kind of grounded, embodied, uh, mm. a, uh, kind of notion of reciprocal care. That's where we, we've been coming from and, um, and, and kind of setting out ideas around, well, you know, right. we, don't, we don't just have to accept uh, the ways in which data are being used in things like, uh, you know, da- you know data is being used all the time now to profile us and to make decisions about us, you know, in ways that are really problematic. And a lot of people are aware of these kind of debates now after, you know, after kind of um, Snowden and WikiLeaks and uh, Cambridge Analytica and all of the various breaches and all these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So I think you know, pe- people are aware that data is being harvested about them and it's being used to make decisions in relation to them. But we right. all feel a little bit kind of disempowered in that, that it's these organisations who are a bit black boxed and bit of a bit of a distance or by the state who are quite difficult to challenge. Mm-hmm. So what, what do we do at a kind of a personal level? What do we do? Also, just as importantly, what do we do collectively? Like can we kind of and together to alter what's ha- what's happening. So this is our idea around kind of slow computing, uh, and we kind of developed this notion of kind mm. of uh, data justice, which is really which mm. is really rooted actually in kind of indigenous scholarship. Um, uh, this notion of kind of um, mm-hmm. uh, 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 data sovereignty. And in the slow computing book, we also talk about temporal sovereignty how a lot of this technology seems to speed up our everyday lives and create temporal density and fragment our kind of schedules and uh, and so on. You know, so we always feel there's not enough time in a day to, to some degree and it's right. because we're busy because of this technology. And so, yeah, so the, the, the idea of data sovereignty then is, is, well, how do we gain some autonomy or control mm. over, over our data? Now, obviously, indigenous scholarship, that's about, you know, it, it's very much about sovereignty. It's about, um, you know, it's about how data is being used to uh, govern and regulate and control um, particular populations and using uh, kind of knowledge structures and ideas yeah. that, that don't that don't tie in with their own kind of uh, worlding and, and their view of the their view and thinking about uh, uh, about about world. Um, in relation to us, it's a, it's about kind of interventions where we can get mm. some uh, level of control over what we're doing. So, uh, and that can work individually. So, uh, we talk about four kinds of interventions. The first one is curation, about being careful about what data we share because we we volunteer a lot of data through things like social media and and so on too, yeah. and the websites we visit and what we online for. You know, there's lots of ways in which we give data away. 
And there's lots of ways in which the data is just harvested, but we, we can make choices about what technology we use. So we don't, you know, we don't have to have a networked washing machine, mm-hmm. you know, we, you know, uh, so, you know, it's about making, curating the data and what, what's there. Second one is to use things like open source alternatives. So rather than proprietary software that harvest a lot of, a lot of data for those yeah. companies who see their data as a secondary market, the, the open source, open access uh, kinds of projects uh, don't ethos. Uh, you know, so rather than using the kind of Microsoft system, you use Open Libra or mm. and, you know, there's loads of these. Uh, that you know, every major software package you can think of has pretty much got a source alternative. The, the third one is actually to step out of systems. It's to stop using Facebook. It's to stop using uh, 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 technologies that we feel are where where their pernicious effects are enough that we would we would say the benefits are not commensurate with the with the positives, and maybe we're better off stepping. Yes, from them and the last one is obfuscation so you know, the idea you know putting in false answers mm-hmm. evasion non-compliance uh you know trying to trying to mess up the data basically so individual ones and then the collective ones are things like um you know getting involved in those kinds of projects getting involved in open source projects getting involved in civic media getting involved in you know and people people you don't need to be a coder you know they're looking for people who also can do accounts mm. and can do marketing and can do um you know can can help mm. organize events and do all kinds of stuff right so but it's also kind of collective action through things like uh civil um mm-hmm. rights organizations so electronic frontier foundation or american civil union uh, privacy international these kind of ngos that campaign around privacy data security kinds of issues and push for things like um, privacy by design and uh, new standards and uh, new legislation that protect people. That that can often be done mm-hmm. through unions. So within their own organisation, uh, kind of uh, unions looking at you know what uh, workplace surveillance and pushing back mm-hmm. against those kinds of ideas and so on. So so it's both individual and collective. Um, I think part of the part of the issue with a lot of the kind of the self help digital detox literature yeah. is it just just focuses on the individual. In a lot of ways, the real purchase comes off a collective. Things like right to be forgotten, the the right to disconnect, uh, you know, those kinds of ideas. They they come mm-hmm. out of collective movements um, rather than individual action. Uh, so it's, it's about doing it at both levels and uh, and and also kind of having this notion of reciprocal care. You, the, kinds of ideas that can be drawn in here things like data justice and so on uh, but it's, it's 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 that kind of space really that, those kinds of ideas is what we've been advocating for rather than just accepting all of these kind of data relations right uh, kind of resist and challenge them and try to yeah uh, alter them mm-hmm. uh, i particularly appreciated um this phrase or word that you used in the book which was um are data-infused fates. And I, I definitely feel like times when, um, you know, in common layperson discussions, we talk about data futures, it really feels like this inevitable, top-down, totalized uh, data fate, as if we just need to sort of subjugate or uh, just give in to it, and, and there's nothing we can do about it. So I really did like and appreciate the fact that you brought in these two alternatives, which... I guess also feel very uh, doable, very feasible, like you said, um, they, because often uh, um, Im- imagining that uh, anyone who's non-technical reading this book, 
I, I feel like a lot of people go away with the question as to how they, with their skill set, can participate in what is being asked in the book. So I did really appreciate that. Yeah, and there is a kind of a teleology that at work in you know in these kind of big businesses around. Uh, it, there is a kind of a fateful like this is the way it is. It, you know, Mm -hmm, but it's mm -hmm. difficult to push back. It's difficult to rearrange or to rejig the arrangements as they are. So there is this kind of yeah. um, this notion of a kind of a data doxer or a kind of um, a, a kind of surveillance realism that you know that, that, that there's no alternative. There's no there's no there's no way out of the way things are. And and yeah, we we you know a lot of this, a lot of what I'm mm -hmm. writing about is the way in which things are contingent and contextual, relational. And that there's a lot of space in which to uh, rejig things and to uh, imagine alternatives, you know, so, you know, you can imagine things like data trusts, for example, give a lot more control to the, the people who the data relates to as opposed to um, uh, the state or proprietary mm -hmm. com uh, uh, companies and so on. Yeah, I feel like um, that's that's something that this book did for me as well, which was that. Uh, when I teach undergrad classes to STS or tech students, um, I often get them to the point where we say, okay, data are contingent and messy and relational, but so what? And if that isn't, that loop isn't closed with uh, not, not a utopic, but at least a hopeful uh, answer that talks about sort of empowerment or how you can do things, uh, which this book did really well, which was that, well, if we understand that data are contingent and messy and relational, then that in fact means that we have agency, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and you know, I think there's a tagline on the book that, you know, it kind of says there's a lot of kind of politics and there's a lot of uh, issues here, but there's also hope. And as you say, the hope is the fact that it uh, there are these kind of fissures that, are, that can be kind of opened out to... You know, it's kind of re re mm. reimagine, remake, recast. Uh, you know what these structures are, how they're built, who they serve, what they aim to do, how they're regulated, how they're controlled, and so on. That you know, they're all. Uh, you know, th th these are not fixed, uh, immutable um, sets of relations. Um, yeah, so that, that that kind of politics is in the book. I mean, the student book is is like a hundred percent that you know it's 100 percent. you know what 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 can you do yourself as a as an individual or as part of a collective to to intervene and to imagine things uh, 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 differently yeah exactly this has been a wonderful discussion thank you so much but before we let you go uh, I'm sure we would all love to know what are you working on currently and what might we expect to see from you in the near future? Yeah, so there's a book in press at the minute, uh, The Data Revolution, uh, which is the second edition of that book. So it's seven years since the first one and a huge amount has happened, kind of big data, open data uh, in the intervening time. But actually more of what's happened is, is there's just been a huge expansion of academic work uh, on kind of critical critical kinds of approaches onto onto data so that, that book's been basically entirely rewritten it's about 70 percent new content um wow. and is it and is it extended a lot so it's about 50 percent longer than it, than it was as well in september and then the book i'm working on at the minute is on uh, time this is on the timescape of cities 
and the kind of role of technology uh, in relation uh, to that. In in my head, it's a kind of the the sequel to the space book, uh, mm-hmm. which was all about software and space. Right. Uh, whereas this is about um, technology and time. Uh, yeah, so I'm I'm working away on that at the minute, and hopefully I'll get it finished by the end of the summer. Nice. That's so good to know. Um, we're excited. I mean, once your new book is out, I'm hoping that we can again get back and talk about it. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Um, and have a good day. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, uh, having a chat with me about the book. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.